I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. How do you like that? The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good luck. We care about your world. My guest is Langston Kong. He's a shamanic practitioner specializing in emotional clearing and radical transformation. And he's the author of Deep Liberation, Shamanic Tools for Reclaiming Wholeness in a Culture of Trauma, which offers practices to help us navigate and transmute the great challenges and insanity of our time into the medicine for personal, communal, and world healing. So welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Today, we're going to talk about community and spiritual community mm-hmm. and the writing of this book. You know, this is your book, but it was also a product of a communal effort. Absolutely. So, yeah, I was really curious how you're doing and the people in your community in response to the things that have come to a head in the past week. Yeah. In terms of my shamanic community, there's a weird way of like the more the world gets chaotic and <laughs> just the sort of delusions that we've been living in get kind of laid bare, like delusions of white supremacy, of anti-Semitism, of you know, incredible divisiveness and scarcity and all those, all those ways that we have been trained to think are just sort of normal facets of everyday life. The more that those become very apparent and clear for everyone to see, in some ways I feel a little bit of relief around that. It's not that I want the harm that's being done to be done. It's not that I'm not affected or don't feel grief as I'm witnessing these events, but there's another part of me, maybe a deeper part of me perhaps, that's like, well, at least it's beginning to be harder to sort of keep our heads buried in the sand with what the actual state of our country is. I remember during Obama's era, you know, people really having these actual genuine think pieces about, are we living in a post-racial culture? You know, <laughs> it's just like, it's in some ways, it's, it's good to, to have the realities of racism and white supremacy and anti-Semitism in the U.S. be laid bare versus just having to do so much work to convince people that it's something we even need to care about or think about or try to look at how we could do things differently around. Mm-hmm. And also it gives you something juicy to work with. Yes. 
And like, hopefully we don't have to wait for life to you know, force it, force these things in our face to be working with them. But yes, yeah, it gives you plenty of triggers and maybe aspects of self that you thought that were a little bit asleep, you know, a little bit, you know, just going with the flow, just trying to focus on what you were trying to do and manifest in the world and maybe a little bit of sleep to the amount of needless suffering that is happening right now. And I think when these events happen, they do wake those parts of us up and ask us and or invite us to risk empathy again, you know, to notice where our heart has become a bit closed or we've been living a bit in our head versus really being in our body. And I think in this year where we've all experienced so much loss, even those of us who've had like relatively good years like in some ways this year has been great for me in that i you know managed to finish my book and get it out into the world and i'm teaching a lot but in other ways you know there's there's people in my life that i've had to worry if they were going to die when they got covid you know close family members or friends there's people and thankfully no one i am extremely close to has passed away but but i know so many of my just like one or two people removed from me that have had that experience and so I think when there's this immense collective grief in a culture where there's not a lot of space for the feeling of that grief, it's easy to unconsciously start to numb ourselves a bit. And so there's a way that sometimes events like the storming of the Capitol building can be these, hopefully these energies that pierce the stagnation a bit and allow us to feel into a deeper reality beneath the surface of things and really just even if you're talking about our own emotional reality not even getting into like the deeper state of things in the world but just our own emotional response who's someone part of like a tiny energy body within this big collective energy body and illuminates for us the need to make time and space to process some of that grief and they're connected too even if we're not overtly aware of it especially considering the way you talk about how it's good to have all this white supremacy and this ugliness in our nation coming to the surface, because in many ways, it's better than the long-standing denial of its existence by the mainstream of our culture, because when it's under the surface and it can be plausibly denied and ignored, and we never get to really take responsibility for it and work on it and heal it and change it. It's only when it comes to the surface and we become aware of it as a culture, as a broader community, that we can even really begin to make meaningful change. So in a way, even though it's so crazy to see what's happening, I see that this is a wonderful opportunity, finally, to deal with things directly. Yes, and I think the reason that these events were able to bring some good awareness and the possibility of direct action in relationship to some of these energies that have been brewing for a long time under, you know, 45's presidency, I think it's important to recognize the work of the many, many black organizers who told 
people who were ready to engage in protest or you know counter protest to stay home and let this just be the people who chose to go to the Capitol building and storm it and not have that message of who is doing that be obfuscated in any way. And so I think a lot of times we just think of these events as like, oh yeah, good thing that happened because now we get to deal with this. But it's like you have to recognize the work of so many really strategically thinking black organizers, many of them black women, many black queer women who made sure that these events could go the way that they've gone. And alongside that, I worry about the idea that we require collectively events like this to actually engage with the problems that are, you know, the systemic problems of our culture. Because I think what that then does is it continues to put the burden on the most marginalized and those most affected by the systemic harms of our culture to actually create change. Like, for example, looking at all the work Stacey Abrams did and the many other incredible organizers did in Georgia to mobilize this voting base, that, like, to continue to expect, you know, black women, black queer women to do the bulk of the work because they're often the ones that are most affected by these systemic harms, I think is very unfair. And so I would like to see us using tools like, you know, the ones I, you know, talk about in the deep liberation process, the book, and whatever inner tools for deep inner work we have to be proactively seeking out where are the aspects of suffering or harm that's being done in my culture that I am complicit in that I am able to ignore because I am not directly affected yet by those harms? And how can I be proactively moving to those spaces of numbness within myself and probably fear of feeling the realities of the ways we're complicit in harm in those ways so that I can actually feel moved in my heart to create change, not out of a sense of trying to help someone else, like trying to save someone else, but just the recognition that we are all already connected. And so if we could create a world that was truly safe for black queer women, we would create a world that was safer for everyone. So how can I be proactively working to create that world and not just waiting until I personally am uncomfortable or things have become extreme enough that I personally feel fear? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think about that a lot for black people and particularly people at greater intersectional places like queer black women, especially. It's essential to be doing this work, whereas for members of the dominant white community, it can seem like a luxury to do that or an extracurricular thing. It's not something that's essential for their or our survival as we perceive our place in the world as being secure and so very privileged and not threatened by anything because we have such a dominant place in the world. So mm -hmm. as I watch all this going on, and I was exposed to the extreme iniquities 
of our white, male, violent, dominant culture very early in my life, I've experienced many rounds over and over of rage and shame and horror at what our culture and our nation have been doing in the world. Shame to be an American, shame to be, you know, a privileged white person, you know, going through those inevitable stages of self-understanding and accountability and sense of responsibility and connection to a broader world and being part of a broader community that includes, ultimately includes everyone and everything. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's why, you know, to go back to our topic of community, why community is so important. And I think the, like you were saying, the more marginalized you are, the less access to resources or the more, you know, systemic and institutional harm you're exposed to and the more, the more, you know, colonial attacks you're exposed to in a sense, the more you understand the necessity of community because you don't have access to the ability to insulate yourself in the way that, you know, when you have a certain amount of resources and access to rank, privilege and power, you can. And of course, even that ability to think you're insulating yourself is, is of course, ultimately a lie because over time, as we, as we're, as we see, you know, you, you reach a place where you have, you're forced probably to reckon with the fact of all that you are connected to within the, a larger system. But there's a longer time when you have a certain amount of resources and access to rank, privilege, and power that you can live in that lie of separation. And so, you know, there's this quote by Bell Hooks I really like from All About Love that I think a lot about in the context of all of this. Much as I enjoy popular New Age commentary on love, I am often struck by the dangerous narcissism fostered by spiritual rhetoric that pays so much attention to individual self-improvement and so little to the practice of love within the context of community. Packaged as a commodity, spirituality becomes no different from an exercise program. While it may leave the consumer feeling better about his or her life, its power to enhance our communion with ourselves and others in a sustained way is inhibited. You know, Bell Hooks is such a beautiful, incredible way with words and a way with talking about love in particular, but to me, that's, that's the argument that excites me because you know, the argument that it's not just that, oh, you need to care for like the poor marginalized people and stop insulating yourself and hoarding resources, but you actually, what you're doing is preventing your own growth and preventing your own communion with the deeper aspects of yourself and the deeper aspects of all of life by insulating yourself in that way. It's not that you should do it for others, but for yourself, for your own sake, you should recognize the ways that when it's easy for us to consume the lies of our culture because we're people who the culture grants more rank, power, and privilege to, in exchange for that rank, power, and privilege, we're being asked to cut off parts of ourself. Mm -hmm. And I think we're seeing a lot of evidence of the harm it's doing to the white dominant culture, people in the white dominant culture who are in denial, who are ignorant of the consequences of their self-isolating and self 
self-privileging and self-reliance on the cornering of all the resources for themselves is harming them terribly. I mean, there's such a lack of of deep sense of self in our culture. Mm-hmm. And there's a growing prevalence of despair and suicide among white, uh, privileged white people. And to me, it seems pretty obvious just from my own earlier experiences of depression and disconnection and disassociation and despair that, that if you don't have a deeper connection to the spirit of our humanity, then it's so easy to get so lost that you would eventually get to a place where you might just decide to end it all because there's no hope. You don't see any light at the end of this tunnel that that we've sort of created for ourselves through this American white tradition of rugged individuality that we don't need to rely on anybody else, that we can do it all ourselves, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It, it's madness. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree completely. And then on top of that, also the myth of the rugged individual, like the sort of way that became commodified and marketed as the nuclear family, this like little island of the mother and the father and the children that should be the end-all be-all for how you express and share your love. And the way that also creates a similar sort of insular bubble where it is true in that bubble that change is hopeless and you know despair is inevitable. But if you're willing to pierce that bubble and feel into the wider breadth and depth of life available all around us and the love teeming through life for humanity, for all of life, then you're no longer in this endless tunnel of despair and hopelessness. Right, and being able to learn from the shared experiences of everybody else, whereas in those isolated nuclear families, there was no sharing of those kind of experiences. So there was so much dysfunction that remained isolated and unpierced in those families, and there was no way to escape it from that way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. And and so we need to understand in this, really something that helps my understanding is that that's not normal. Because it's, it's terrifying how easy it is to normalize something that is such a recent development. You know, like the nuclear family was being really put forward as an idea right in like the 50s, essentially. And ultimately, in an indigenous context, there's this understanding of the importance of, you know, the individual being supported in the living their unique genius and purpose in the world that they've been dreamed into community to embody. And there's this symbiotic relationship between the individual and the community supporting the individual and their unique genius, and then the individual sharing that unique genius and their gifts and medicine in service to the community and the shared vision of that community. And then there's this of course, connection there between the individual and their family. But there's not so much weight put on the family structure as the sole structure of support and containment because even the idea of family is much looser. Like there's probably many different adults in that culture that are tending to children. There's not this sense of like, oh, your children are only your responsibility because they're your family but this understanding that these children are this precious 
resource, like the most precious resource that our community has. And so we all are invested in tending and nurturing their ability to just be kids and be supported in moving into a state of adulthood where they can begin to share their gifts in community. And then, of course, there's the connection between the family and community and community with all of creation, not solely ending the definition of community as the human beings, but also understanding what are the plants and animals that we're dependent upon for our existence that we want to stay in relationship with and communication with and intimacy with. What are the aspects of the land we're living on that we need to stay in relationship with and tend in terms of the mountains, the forests, the lakes? You know, and how do we not just not take too much? Like, it's not just about sustainability, but how do we actively help the environment we're in to thrive so that we can thrive? And I think, like, it's almost overwhelming to feel how much of those basic understandings that would be just the normal state in any indigenous culture we've lost. Yeah, right. Our conception of community needs to go beyond just the human realm to include the entire environment in which we live and everything that shares that environment with us because we don't exist in a bubble as we have been trying to believe in this culture for so long. Well, actually, it hasn't been that long. It's, it's, it's really just been over, you know, in this past century. But it seems so long for us because we haven't, yeah. we haven't been around that long. But it's becoming clear how insane that is as we're faced with this crisis of climate change. And now we're seeing the ugly head of violent white male supremacy rearing its ugly head, not only willing, but wanting to wreak complete havoc on whatever sanity and little bit of culture and community that we do have in this nation. Yes. And, of course, when you speak to that, I also think of how much ancestry plays into all of this, too. From a shamanic perspective, you know, community is not just, not just the human world that are living. It's not just the environment and the, and the spirit world that's living, but also the humans who have passed on, gone to the ancestral realms, like a place where they can sort of, in a very simplified explanation, merge with a sense of like oneness with all things and then choose to come back as an ancestor helping spirit that embodies all of the lessons and medicine they accrued and learned over the course of their lifetime. So we're not constantly reinventing the wheel. So our scope of what's normalized isn't so narrow to be just the last century like you were talking about. When, when we have connection to this wisdom and continuity that goes back thousands of years, there's a whole different understanding a perspective of time and what actually serves life over a long period of time. But I think what we see in our culture right now is the opposite of that, which is when the ancestors are not tended, when those who are dying or dead are not tended well, they're not helped to reconcile their lives in a way that allows them to move to that place where they can become a true ancestor then be called back when we're not grieving people properly. And then the dead, from my perspective, the dead, if they're not ancestralized, they are stuck. And so they try to hijack 
the ability of the living to co-create their reality in the way that we just can move in our heart and manifest together as human beings on this earth they have to try to hijack that ability that we have as the living because we have bodies and use our free will to try to fix their unresolved stuff but they don't know how to fix their unresolved stuff they're dead you know they're still stuck in that sort of stasis of the same beliefs that they held when they were alive because they no longer have this ability to really deeply co-create reality in the way that being on earth changes us in a body being on earth in a body changes us and allows us to learn and grow and so the unresolved dead replicate their unresolved issues through us and over time those patterns get worse and worse as each generation replicates them in new ways and the patterns just snowball down the lines getting more and more heavy and distorted and hard and i think a, a lot of times when we see these people that are really acting out these beliefs and ideologies of white supremacy there's this ancestral possession sometimes that's happening of these unresolved ancestors acting out their own pain and their own unresolved beliefs through their descendants and creating these sort of lenses and filters that their descendants perceive reality through that is not reality but rather the filter of their unresolved issues yeah i love what you're saying it's like we've broken the communication between us and the dead and that we need to have an ongoing evolving communication with them for our own benefit and for their benefit so that they can rest in peace knowing that the work they have done has been recognized and assimilated into the world and when we break that communication and we disregard and ignore that it's as if it becomes essential for them to to haunt us and plague us until we recognize the need to integrate them back into our lives in a way. Yeah, and I think it's that's almost like two different things that are both equally important. There's the way that the dead haunt us when we're not acknowledging them, the well dead, the dead who really do have medicine and wisdom to share with us. And there's a way we can be haunted by those who have never really left this plane to begin with. They're still stuck kind of as what you might call ghosts here. unresolved stuck in their pain and just replicating that pain in their descendants and both are problems <laughs> and and one is the remedy for the other the more that we can engage the wisdom of the of the deeply well luminous ancestors who hold all that is good and true and beautiful in our lineage and all of us have them no matter how fucked up our families are or how painful our relationship with our families are we all have those ancestors we go back far enough that really lived and died well and hold medicine for us and if the more we can engage them the more we can work with them to help resolve those who are still stuck and need to be moved on in a way that allows us to also gain their medicine because it's not only the ones who lived like incredibly perfect pristine lives that have the medicine if you have an ancestor who really messed up their life really failed to do what they came here to do and caused a lot of harm as a result of that turning away from their passion and their purpose if you can get that ancestor moved on and healed up and back as a true ancestor helping spirit they are an incredible asset to helping you make sure you don't make the same mistakes helping you 
notice those times when you're making those small daily choices that are going to lead to you missing your life because they don't want anyone to experience that same thing that they experienced. Mm -hmm. Often our greatest mistakes are the things that we can learn the most from. Yeah, yeah. And again, in our culture, we deny our mistakes and that denies us the ability to learn from our mistakes and that they're essential steps along the path. Yeah. Well, so I was just thinking about that concept of learning from and assimilating from mistakes and how you were talking about how this book was really a product of community, which I talk about a bit in the introduction, that, you know, the teachings of the deep liberation process, which really is a process for how to assimilate those mistakes in a way, at least as one component of it, you know, how to really notice when life is trying to initiate us and trying to help us to see these aspects of self that are stuck in stories that are out of alignment with who we truly are and who we came here to be, how to actually track those parts of self and work with them and integrate them and transform them. You know, one of my teachers, Christina Pratt, these teachings came out of her work with this incredible woman, Phyllis Pei, who was this Chinese-American psychic who you know, I never worked with her, but from my hearing of stories, she was someone who really invited people into deep heart-centered intimacy with each other as they were developing their psychic and energetic capabilities in terms of having people like sit with each other and say what they were observing about each other and then notice the triggers that would come up as they were speaking about each other and then in the moment with that person have to engage these skills to withdraw their projection or triggers and track them into the root of their body and then reclaim the parts of themselves lost in those triggers in the moment. And so there's this incredible work of understanding that we can't just cultivate psychic capabilities, these like sort of subtle energy or intuitive capabilities without also deeply being willing to engage directly with each other and move into our discomfort and let our heart break and heal and grow and expand in that process of engagement in that intimate way. And so Christina then took these teachings and developed them much deeper as she went through the course of her life over the last you know 30 years and placed them within a shamanic cosmology that came through her contemporary initiation experience as a shamanic practitioner as an initiated shaman as someone who was a contemporary western person you know growing up in oregon but had a, what might be called a very classical shamanic initiatory experience of being brought to the point of death or insanity and having to translate what your spirit helpers were sharing with you in that period, you know, over the course of years in a way that allows you to then lead others down a path of their own healing and own initiatory processes and have medicine to share with others. And so out of those experiences of her own initiatory experiences as a shaman, this whole deep cosmology came of transformation, of how we actively engage in transformation and change and shape change skillfully and essentially how we can become spiritual adults 
as contemporary people. And when I say spiritual adults, I'm not talking about you know, the sort of colonial idea of this, like the person in a suit who's going to work or the, you know, the excellent homemaker or the person who can do it all, you know, or a person who's managed to sort of like lock down their passions so that they can serve their family and tightly control their emotions and be rational all the time. Not that kind of like boring, hideous idea of what it is to be an adult, but this indigenous concept of being someone who's managed to be supported in dropping your family of origin baggage, of stepping into this relationship with the spirit world more in that parental role in the sense of, or at least in the sort of ecstatic co-creator role of like the earth is mother, the sky is father is one example of that, and has reconnected to the lineage of their ancestors and that wisdom flowing to them viscerally, and then also is deeply in alignment with the energy of their purpose, that sort of indescribable energy that's unique to them that they are, and so they can find more sustainable and precise vehicles for the expression of that energy, that purpose, in community, in service to a vision that's bigger than themselves. And so that's what I mean when I say spiritual adult. And so out of this cosmology and these teachings came this process for deeply moving inward and engaging with life as a teacher to step into deeper and deeper spiritual maturity even without the support of an intact community and culture of elders that are guiding you through your initiations. So it really was an answer to how do we do this as contemporary people in a broken culture that has failed us and stopped initiating us into adulthood. And so when I say these teachings are a product of community, what I mean is Christina and then later me, you know, over the past 10 years as well, we're working with these tools in community because about 10 years into creating this cosmology and these teachings called the cycle of transformation, we received this message, and I wasn't there at the time when this message was received, but when I say we as the community received this message, that these teachings could only be offered in a way that was in alignment with the teachings themselves. And so to do that, we needed a community to be offering them in. They couldn't be offered any longer in this kind of spiritual consumerism model where you sign up for a retreat and then you go home with the goodies you got from the retreat and then maybe you come back another year for another retreat, like a vacation, but not as this deep, sustained engagement with a community that you're living these teachings within. And I think there's many reasons for that, many of which we're still unpacking and coming to understand. But one of the reasons that's really apparent to me is that you just can't do it. You can't move to this deep, transformative work of shamanism outside the context of community where you can be practicing in between retreats being the person that you've become through your transformations because our culture in so many ways is so toxic and, and there's, it's so hard to be supported in our authenticity, in our culture, we need these people that are agreeing to practice shared skills in service of a vision that's bigger than ourselves in community while we're trying to be as much in our authenticity and our spiritual adulthood as possible. We need that space to be making mistakes and fumbling with each other and 
you know, taking risks and working together on a weekly basis to actually be living the teachings and not have them be just some peak experience we dip into in an addictive way and then go back into our life and compartmentalize all that weird spiritual stuff we do. So when I say this book comes out of community, what I mean is this book comes out of people risking trying these tools, trying to show up, trying to use them to transform and change their life over 30 years, you know, 30 plus years at this point, and sharing that knowledge as they go and reflecting back to each other when we feel we're out of alignment with those teachings and reflecting back to each other when we see how we're deeply in our beauty and our unique genius and working together on councils to lead the community and, and manifest more of the vision of the community. And this book coming out of my experience in all of that and the ways that we've learned over time through ourselves and other community members being willing to risk deep transformation. I love all of what you talked about so much in there and it's so interconnected all the different elements of community, how it goes back into the past and also it extends into the future and this psychic aspect of it, you know, the teachings reaching out to a community that, that perhaps was either fledgling or perhaps had not yet formed and yet knowing there was this fertile ground for it to blossom something that was already alive in a sense, but had the opportunity to appear and grow and develop in this world. And I just love this notion of spiritual community that's integrating the spirit world. And I would just love for you to talk about some of the challenges that you've experienced in this process of developing community and integrating the tools and learning from each other within this experience of community. You wrote about one, or you mentioned, you didn't actually write about it, but you mentioned that something happened within the community. A person, I believe their name was Rada Vega, and they brought up something in the context of a community meeting that had not yet been processed and that it brought the community to a whole new level of evolution. And so I would love to explore some of this stuff with you, some of the experiences that you've had and, and how you've dealt with challenges and how you and the community has grown through these processes. Yeah, thank you. So I would love to start by talking about Rada. Rada is one of the first ancestors of our community, actually. She was an incredible woman. She was a perfumer, but one of her main passions was she would rescue dogs. She would like get these dogs that were from like, you know, rescue shelters. And she would then train them to be these champion competitive herding dogs. And just to imagine like someone who has the capacity of heart to take a dog who has lost trust in themselves, lost trust in them in the world and teach them to love again and trust again to the amount that you can turn them into like competitive champions is just incredible to think about that. And that really, I think, exemplifies one aspect of the type of person that Rada was. And 
she had this incredible directness. It sometimes comes across as like quite harsh, actually, <laughs> but she had this ability to just do the thing, just like get all the emotional stuff or like the walk on eggshells or like the niceness or the politeness out of the way and just do the thing, get the thing done. And even if it was something terrifying or unknown or undefined. And so that I actually forgot that I shared that story in the book, but that story that I was referencing was a moment when in community, and I wasn't in community at this time, but you have to understand, it's easy to say like we received the message from spirit and then we realized we needed to make a community and then we made the community and everything was good, but that was, that was not at all how it went. It was more like three years of people showing up in what was called the dream team at the time. So the dream team was a group of people that were journeying. So they were engaging in this shamanic journeying practice of going into the spirit world, using their skills to ask these questions. And everyone would be asking the same question to our helping spirits and then doing what we call in our community a process of potification, where three people at once will be journeying, at least three people, will be journeying on a question and then they'll bring their answers together and allow them to form an answer that's bigger than the sum of its parts. So this sort of like creative friction that happens when you're bringing these answers together and you're beginning to receive like beneath our individual interpretations, what's the larger answer from spirit that we're trying to be given in this moment, or we're trying to receive in this moment. And so then meanwhile, Christina, as the leader and shaman of the community that at that time, before there was a community structure where there was other leadership, if you ever seen A Beautiful Mind, it's very much like that, these scenes where he's in his little shack with like newspaper clippings everywhere all over the place. She's like taking all of these journeys that are being done by different groups of students and piecing them together into this structure of community that we're receiving from spirit that's becoming available to us. And so we were at this crucial point in the community where we had some of the structure, not as fully developed as we have it now in the community, but some of the structure was there. And there are people on this council that were trying to do the work that the spirit world had told us we needed to do and that Christina was sort of delivering the messages about, but nothing was getting done. They were just sort of stagnating. They were showing up together, but nothing would ever really get done. They just they felt like they didn't know how to do what Christina was asking, and they were sure that she had some sort of secret knowledge of how to do what was being asked that she wasn't sharing with them. This was like some kind of test or something. So they kept trying to get her to give them the information, but she didn't have it. She didn't know how to do what they were being asked to do either, and they were being asked to figure it out through being willing to just leap into the unknown and risk and trust and try using the teachings. And so Rada, one time just said, all right, let's just do it. Like they had begun to be learning these teachings that are now the deep liberation process of, or at least in one aspect of it, the sort of emotional clearing work of, you know, doing this deep inner work. And, but none of them had really done it yet. And so Rada just stepped in and started trying to do it herself. She just started going deep within in this very vulnerable, intimate way and trying to see what was at the root of all of the sort of emotional thrash that was coming up around getting this done. And her willingness in that moment to embody that beautiful kind of leadership, which is not a power over, but simply 
inspiring others to step into power through exercising your own power and embodying what you want others to do, it pierced the stagnation and then everyone else was able to start clearing, they were start able to doing it together, engaging the process of this work. And then within a few months, they were able to get a project finished that was one of their first projects from Spirit that needed to have happen that we still use in community, the certain handbook of these certain ways of being in community. And so it was just such a good lesson that we cannot do this work as community unless we're engaging these tools that allow us to stay in right relationship with each other and the flow of life that's wanting to happen through us. Otherwise, we just stagnate or we default into patterns of, you know, abuse of power, of control, of domination, of tyranny that are what we resort to when we're not in this healthy flow of relationship with each other and with our community and with the spirit world. I love this. I'm so excited that you're talking about all this stuff because I was so incredibly fortunate to be part of a community who learned that basic tool from the beginning so that we could engage in communal healing, communal growth, communal spiritual process together. And one of my favorite activities outside of the training work that we did when we were living you know, living in communal houses was our weekly meetings where we would sit formally in a circle and do this exact type of clearing work that you're describing. And every week we would do this. And to me, this was the most delicious work that we could be doing because in the process of diving into the issues and challenges that we were having with ourselves and with each other in relation, we were connecting more and more deeply with our own essential selves and the recognition of each other's essential selves. And so it was just an exquisitely beautiful experience and process to go through. And I'm really excited to find out more about the work that you guys have done in your community with these shamanic tools that you have all been evolving and evolving with. So please... Talk more about the magic of this community that you're part of and, and the things that you have continued to explore and discover and experience, you know, including the mm -hmm. challenges and the joys of it. Yeah, absolutely. So moving forward in history a bit, I am in my second year of the teachings in the cycle of transformation, this sort of four to five year program of spiritual adulthood, of, of really gaining the tools to be able to dismantle the false self you created as a child to survive by the end of those five years. And learning the tools also just to engage life as a spiritual adult, because of course we like to think of these programs or these transformational processes as these linear pathways like academia where you just like you know get a degree and then you're official and then you can go off into the world and do your work but in reality when we're looking at these processes of transformation you're not just the goal isn't just the transformation but to learn the skills that give you the capacity to continually engage in a process of transformation for the rest of your life because until we're dead there's still plenty to transform and the moment we start thinking oh yeah I'm good now I've transformed enough we start moving into shadow and fear and different ways of 
doing harm, really, ultimately, in the world by turning away from ourselves and from life. Because life is a living process that's constantly growing and evolving and shaping and changing. And to sort of be part of that process of life and in service of it, we need to be constantly growing and evolving and changing as well. And so I'm in my second year of the teachings. I, I just finished my second year of the teachings. And I think in that moment, Christina got a message from Spirit that I and a few others that were much younger in the community should step into a leadership role in the community. We, now we have this structure of leadership by council. So there's like a shrines council that is tending to our relationship with the elements in community collectively and making sure that like elemental balance is flowing within the community. There's a leadership council, which we call community council, which is really working to tend to making sure each council is in alignment with the vision of the community as a whole. And we're continuing to move towards manifesting that vision of our community and what we want it to be in the world. And also making sure they're tending the teachings as well because the community holds the teachings. They're, again, they're not held in this consumerist model. They're held by these people that are volunteers serving on councils. And there's a bunch of other councils as well, but essentially I was invited to join this leadership council because there was this message from Spirit that we needed to have some of the younger members join and bring their perspective, even though it didn't make sense, even though the original vision was that only people who had fully made it to the teachings and dismantled would be on that council, we needed to sort of break those rules and invite younger members on and shake things up a little bit because you're moving into stagnation somewhat. And I was terrified. I remember asking my teacher at the time, like, okay, is there like a book list I should read or something? Because I love books. I love reading. I love having that way to prepare. And he's like, well, Langston, I think we're writing that book, you know, now. <laughs> it's like, okay, great. And... You know, Rada was one of the members of that council at that time. And what was beautiful about Rada and about all the members of that council at that time in the community where there were these older members who many of them have been in the teachings for like 15, 20 years. And they happily took me in on that council. They listened to what I had to say. They, you know, had no problem telling me when I was off or when I was, you know, going astray or not you know, honoring my commitments and beliefs and principles, which happened plenty of times too. But there was no sense of like, well, you're just a younger member of the community, so, you know, your contributions aren't that valuable. There was this real welcoming and inviting in. And it wasn't, doesn't mean it was easy. There was plenty of dysfunction on the council at the time. And I had plenty of dysfunction because I think all of us, what, what I've experienced over my years of being in this community is that Anyone who comes in the community has a struggle at the beginning of council work with wrestling between what they've learned how to lead and how to be part of a group from the contemporary culture of you know, capitalism that we live in versus how to be in a group in a way that actually is in service to a vision and, and, our, and the expression of our authenticity and the expression of true love you know, in community. Like that love in the context of community that Bell Hooks was talking about. And so we come up against all of these beliefs and stories that we didn't even know we had. That if we're willing to 
engage with the discomfort of them and not just project them onto others be like oh well this community isn't doing things right or oh these people aren't real elders you know we're willing to actually engage with our own discomfort and the, our own internalized harmful stories and beliefs and fears then what i find is over time you start to develop this what we might call a communal wisdom body in our teachings we talk about the different wisdom bodies of sort of like the mind wisdom body the mental wisdom body the emotional wisdom body the physical wisdom body the spiritual wisdom body as these different centers of knowing and power that need to be in balance to be in wholeness but there's a whole other wisdom body we started to realize of this communal wisdom body which is the ability to be in community as a contemporary person and it's interesting, you know, I, I, sometimes I rattle off the term contemporary person and my real reference for that is a contemporary person living in the U.S. <laughs> like, for example, my father is married to a woman who's Swiss. And for her, my dad is a Zen Buddhist priest and they're part of a Buddhist order. And, and she found it much easier to be in community as part of that Buddhist order than the average person coming in because in Swiss culture, there's a much greater understanding of what it is to be in community and shared leadership and shared power and how to engage that together. And so I think it is, in some ways, it's not necessarily a universal thing that as contemporary people, we've forgotten how to do this, but certainly most of the people that come into our community need help stepping into that sense of growing a communal body that actually has the capacity to work in relationship with other people and share power in that way. And so I had to work through all of my stuff around that. And what I found was that it accelerated my process of growth within the teachings, which is really cool to see. Because you could think of this as like, oh, I'm doing this like community service on behalf of this community because I believe in their vision. But really, what we found is if you are not serving on a council, you are not learning the teachings. You just don't. You don't, you, you might learn some of them, you might find yourself transforming a bit, but you don't transform in the depth and with the speed and with the ability to bring that transformation out fully into your life if you're not actually serving on a council and letting that work in community stretch you and immediately give you traction because there's no hiding. There's no hiding your process when on a weekly basis you're trying to make things happen together in community. So I'm trying to think of like what would be useful challenges to share. There's, there's many. I mean, every day there's new challenges in community. Maybe, maybe it'd be useful to share that. So one of the things we do as a community is that each council has responsibilities for different types of energies they're tending as part of community. Like for example, community council is tending the collective shadows that are present in community. So just in the natural you know, state of things, the natural way that people are being together, there's inevitably going to be some kind of shadows that are arising, areas where we're turning away from love and, and moving into fear, and then the sort of shadow behavior that arises out of those fears. And so we engage these tools to look at these collective shadows and also talk with the other councils to see what they see within the unique energies that they're meant to be tending is arising that needs to be addressed. And then during the solstice, the winter solstice, we divine a ritual before the solstice that we all do on the solstice 
that will help to address those communal shadows that are arising currently. So a lot of those shadows in community at that time were around leadership, our willingness to step into leadership. And so that was really deeply helpful to me to see how as I was stepping into leadership and community, I was learning so much in the ways I was triggered, the ways I was failing, the ways I was trying to show up and, and not able to. And then also, I was in my sort of personal process around my power and leadership because I was in year three of the teachings, which is a lot about that, about power and trust and dismantling the stories that get in the way of using our power, many of them stories about gender, like what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman and what that says about how you're allowed or not allowed to use your power. And so as I was moving in all of that, and then we were also engaging the community rituals around collective issues of, of not stepping into leadership, it just allowed me to see this beauty of how if I had not stepped into this role, I would have not learned how to lead and teach and be sovereign to a different level in my life. And so it just really allowed me to experience that, what we were talking about more intellectually before, of that symbiotic relationship between the individual and the community. And so even though I'm a person who's a contemporary person, you know, living in New York City, not connected to a local community in this way, through this engagement towards a shared vision and non-local community, you know, having weekly calls, council calls, having weekly clearing calls to engage these tools of the deep liberation process, I was able still to gain similar benefits that one would gain if they were in an intact culture of an indigenous community. And again, I just love talking about all of this and I especially also loved how your community was moved to invite younger people into these levels of leadership. In our community, we had the same kind of respect for young people. In the house that I ended up living in for the last few years, I think I was 20 or 21 when I was invited into the house. And there were nine people, and there was a wide range of ages. I was the second youngest person in the house. There was a 15-year-old girl in the house as well. And there were people up in their 60s. And the level of respect and love between everybody was just amazing. And when you were talking about that, it made me cry because I never really grew up in many ways. I mean, I'm still a child. Or I should say, as I've been growing up, the child in me has always been alive. And mm -hmm. I just have such great appreciation and love and respect for young people and children, and I think they have so much more to offer than our culture even begins to recognize or allow. And young people have so much to offer that many old people have long since lost their connection to, which I think is so essential. And we need all voices. We need, as I just spoke with somebody a couple of days ago. She was saying, we need all hands on deck right now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think we see that in the way that we're seeing children leading some of these political movements around the environment and around, you know, gun violence and 
you know, when I see that, I'm actually not heartened, unfortunately. I agree with you completely that children have these incredible gifts and wisdom and closeness to their authenticity that it hasn't gotten so, you know, confused and blocked over the years by the sort of fear-based choices they needed to make to survive that many of us hold as adults. But I feel disheartened that we, as adults, similar to what I was talking about before in terms of marginalized people, that we as adults are relying on children to do our work for us because we're not willing to do it. And so children don't get to be children. They have to be adults in a sense. They have to step into this role, these roles of fighting for their survival <laughs> and versus being protected. Like there's this teaching in my community that children are meant to receive love and adults are meant to give love. And that can sound like scary or hard to really grapple with at first. But if you really feel into it, it's like, yes, like when an adult is in a state of health and well-being, our main work is to share our love with the world, to share and love meaning, you know, our unique genius, love meaning bringing the aspects of our soul and our medicine out into expression in the world in a way that meets the needs of the time we're in understanding every time has unique needs. And from a shamanic perspective, we all chose to come into this time because we wanted to in some way meet the needs of this time to the vision of our purpose and that dream of who we are that we fell so in love with when we were all with the oneness that we decided to come to earth to embody that dream and live it. And so it's our role to be that love, to share that love with the world that we are. And it's the role of children to receive love in a way that inspires them to move more and more deeply into their authenticity and explore and discover who they are so they can then, as adults, share their love with the world. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And it also connects with the excessive burden that's put on marginalized people to not only do all the work that the whole community needs to be doing to include everybody into a broader sense of communal healing, world healing, national healing, that Absolutely. we all have to participate in that and take full responsibility for it. And by denying marginalized people the right to be to fully participate and be engaged in our broader community, it puts an additional burden on their shoulders on top of all the disadvantage of being marginalized. And we, do that, and we do that to our children in this culture. We pay lip service to loving and caring for our children, but in our actions, we actually disregard them. We tell them to shut up and listen to the adults, you know, children are meant to be seen, not heard, things like that. Go to school, stay out of adults' hair, leave the affairs of the world to the adults. And to me, it verges on criminal, but it's the symptom of a sick and immature society. Yeah, I mean, we treat our children or the children we encounter the same way that we treat our inner children, you know, these parts of us, ourselves that are wounded, that are... And I don't want to say that as a one-to-one -one ratio, because I know many people 
despite the immense wounds they themselves have accrued and experienced, have found ways to show deep love and care for children despite that. I mean, because of that. And so I don't want to say it's one-to-one, but there is this way that if we're not willing to truly bring back into our love these parts of us that are trapped in moments of fear from our childhood, it's very hard to bring that love to young people in our life, I think. Mm -hmm. And it reflects back on what you were saying near the beginning of our conversation, talking about how it takes more than just a nuclear family to raise children. It really takes the proverbial village to raise a child instead of what we've done where many white Americans are afraid to allow the broader culture to have any influence on the raising of their children because they have locked themselves into such narrow parameters in terms of values and beliefs and ideologies. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and so I think, you know, in this talk about community, there's so many different levels and layers of what community is. But for us, you know, we found that when people aren't doing this kind of deep inner work or don't have the shared tools for that deep transformational work, communities are closed systems. So what happens is waste begins to accrue within them. And the waste is natural. It's just like, you know, the stuff that accrues of the projections, the fears, the beliefs, the unfair assumptions, you know, just the stuff that happens in human interaction on a daily basis within a closed system. And so there's nothing wrong with that, and that will always be the case. There's no community where waste is never generated. It's like there's no human body where waste is never generated if you're alive. But what happens when we don't have those tools to withdraw our projections, to step out of collusion, to transform and grow together, is we turn that waste into what in our community we call junk. And so junk is the waste that has been disowned. Like, oh, that's not mine. You can deal with that. You know, the way we project onto each other our own stuff and aren't willing to own it and pick it up and engage with it and process it on our own. Or in community, you know, not even on our own, like in partnership with others who are supporting ourselves and doing that work, willing to step into that intimacy and vulnerability of looking at, hmm, maybe I don't see everything here. Hmm, maybe there's something, a dynamic in me that I'm seeing is external to me, but the reason I'm getting triggered by that dynamic is because there's also a way I carry that within myself, and I need to look at that. So when we don't do that, it becomes junk. And over time, as, as you know, junk accrues, then if someone who created that junk leaves the community container, then it becomes what we call sh- this stuff that no one wants to deal with that's that is left for the community to clean up because the person who created that junk left and left everyone else to clean up the mess and so what i really appreciate about the deep liberation process is it it gives us a set of tools that we can engage with peers to do that work of looking at and owning and processing our waste so it doesn't become blocks in the flow of love in community. And also then we become people who can be in community and work together collectively towards a shared vision, which means we become people who can change systems because systems 
are rarely able to be changed by an individual. That's really a myth, I think, that like some one brave hero managed to change that system. It's like, no, systems are shifted by collectives of people working to change them. It doesn't mean everyone in the system has to work in a change, but enough people have to be able to work together in a sustained way over a period of time to change that system. And you need to be able to work in a way that is in alignment with the changes you're working to create. You can't be you know, trying to create more social justice and generating a wake of injustice behind you. And so I think one of my visions for this book is that people would be able to take it and begin working in what I would call deep liberation circles, where they are striving together to engage these tools to move into deeper wholeness and intimacy and power together in a way that cultivates the kind of resiliency that allows people as groups to move into some of the sites of fracture in our culture and in just you know culture sounds really big just but just in your local community sites of fracture that you see in your local landscape or wherever you are and actually weave wholeness inside that fracture versus just being triggered by the fracture and continuing to replicate the same story or, or creating just like plastering on solutions that are just slightly better versions of the same fundamental problem. And so I, I want to, one of my intentions is to support people in that process of forming these circles and find ways of helping people. You know, like I, I teach online courses of the material as well that will probably really help people really wanting to go deep and become someone who can guide others in the work as well. But I hope that people can just pick up this book and start experimenting with it in circles with others and then reach out for help when they need it as they begin deepening their relationship with the work. So I would love for you to describe how people who are interested in doing this kind of work could come together to start doing it. Now, what would be the yeah, beginning well, steps? Mm -hmm. I think the first step would be to read the book, probably. <laughs> so get the book. <laughs> and then the next step, I think, would be committing to a period of time that you're going to practice together. And I think that commitment is really important because it allows you to be committed to a process without attachment to outcome, which I think is a foundational aspect of any engagement with leadership. And this is a shared leadership if you're going to be meeting together. And so... I would hope people could create a shared group of people that are interested together within a community or, within, or making a community by doing it that want to commit to a certain period of time to work on these tools together. And what you might then do is begin engaging them, you know, once a week maybe. I find that that's a good cadence, if you can do it, of once a week and Maybe if it's a larger group, maybe dividing into pods of three or four people, maybe five max, I would think, that meet weekly on a phone call or on a Zoom call. You know, we have so many good technologies now for connecting that weren't there when these teachings were first started. And then engaging with each other in the practice of clearing or in the practice of some of the energy body mastery visualization work. You know, that's the tools for liberating your energy body that I describe in the book. And so just engaging the tools of the book on a weekly basis in community with each other and taking turns 
with, if you're doing the actual clearing process, which is sort of like the second half of the book, taking turns with one person being the person, you know, clearing, engaging the tools to go deep into their inner landscape, another person holding space and maybe other people witnessing, and then just rotating those roles. So it's never like just one person is going. Over time, that could probably look like maybe like 20 to 30 minutes for each person that's clearing. So on an hour call, you could have, you know, maybe three people go potentially using the tools. And then the next week, rotating and doing other people. Or, or if you're only three people, then just continuing on. And maybe meeting periodically as a larger group, if you're like a larger group collective that's doing this, to just talk about what's coming up and the questions that are arising. And then reaching out for help in the process if you need help. And sometimes I might be able to give people just, you know, I'm still thinking about like what kind of space do I want to create for people? Am I going to have a kind of group people can come to engage or reading the book? And that might be something I do. I'm still, still dreaming into what that vision looks like right now. But already we have an online community support where how I offer these teachings and how Christina offers these teachings, when I teach these classes, we offer them about twice a year. And it's usually taught in the format of like a two seven-week classes. The material that's in the book is covered in like two seven-week classes. And then, and of course it goes much deeper even than the book. But during that time, what we say to people is if you take the class once, if you pay for the class once, you then are invited to retake the class as many times as you want in the future. So there's, you only pay for the class once, and mo many people do retake the class. People have taken it four or five times at this point, and it's a very cyclical, fractal skill set. So each time you re-engage the material, you go deeper, and you have new questions, and that strengthens the container of the people in the community that are taking the classes, and then you have access to this group of people that are committed to learning these skills together. So you can do that as a supplement to your local community group that you're forming, or you can let that be your community engagement as well. And then my vision is beyond that even, is that we would be training people to cultivate the level of resilience that they can then choose certain projects to engage in, like I want to create this specific change in my community or in the world in some way, in this specific measurable, actionable way, and we're going to work together to engage these tools to affect that change. And so that's part of the larger vision of the teachings that it's not just about becoming more comfortable within a broken culture, but becoming the people who can actually shift and change that culture in a way that's sustainable. And there's this phrase that I love from Alexis Pauline Gums, this, this wonderful um, black feminist poet and writer, and scholar that's sustainable transformative love and that's a great description of my vision for this work that we learn how we can organize and work to create change together in a way that's not just about mobilizing people to vote or mobilizing people towards a cause in a specific moment that work is really valuable and important too but what I'm interested in is how do we build permanent movement homes how do we build these permanent structures of community that are sustainable because we have the tools to not be, you know, choking on a bunch of waste and junk and shit 
that naturally arise in the community, but can actually process that proactively and continue to grow together in a way that embodies sustainable transformative love over time. I love it. So where can people find out more about your work and access some of the resources that you have available and that you will continually be making available? Yeah, so people can go to, you know, I'm a little bit in transition with websites right now. My current website is occupy-your-heart.com. And so a lot of information will be there. But within the next week, actually, I'm going to be moving to langstoncon.com. So my name, you know, .com. And for now, both websites redirect to each other. So you don't have to, like, remember which one you go to. But that's where a lot of the information is going to be. And there's also going to be more additional resources that go with the book as well that will be available on my website. Well, I have to say, once again, this has been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. This topic is very dear to my heart, and I hope that more people will avail themselves of this kind of work. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking with you, and I so appreciate you inviting me to talk about community, which is one of my you know, favorite topics and I rarely actually get to talk about on a podcast. So this was really, really wonderful. Well, again, thank you so much. It's been just a total delight to talk with you. You feel like such a kindred spirit. Likewise. Thank you so much. Yeah, this is wonderful. My guest has been Langston Khan. He's a shamanic practitioner specializing in emotional clearing and radical transformation and the author of a wonderful book that's coming out on January 19th, Deep Liberation, Shamanic Tools for Reclaiming Wholeness in a Culture of Trauma. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal.
and mountains shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all the flesh shall see it together. like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. That's soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. 